The following podcast is part of the MindBodySpirit.fm podcast network. Are you a healthcare professional looking to translate psychedelic research into practice? Then register for Psychedelic Harm Reduction and Integration, a professional training offered by psychologist Elizabeth Nielsen and Ingmar Gorman at the Omega Institute in Rhinebeck, New York, May 24th through 26th. Earn 12 continuing education credits as you discover how to better support clients who have an interest in psychedelics. Learn more at eomega.org slash thrive. Hello and welcome to the Radiate Wellness Podcast with your host, metaphysician, Reiki master, and hypnotherapist, Christy Clemens Hoffman. Each week, we will discover teachings, tips, and tools to radiate your best life ever with practitioners, authors, and luminaries to help you on your path. Wellness, joy, peace, abundance. What do you want to radiate? Welcome back to the Radiate Wellness Podcast. Today, we radiate butterflies with Steve Andrews, author of Earth Spirit, the Earth Spirit series. Uh, his newest book is Saving Mother Ocean. And I'm just happy to see you today, Steve. Welcome. Hi, Christy. Thank you for having me uh, on your podcast. Oh, I'm happy to. I love your beard. Can you tell us a bit about how you went green? Thank you so much. Yes, I, I can indeed. I actually tell people that a lot of people go gray, and, and my hair is gray. But I actually go green. You know, they go gray with age. I go green with age. But it's a bit, a bit of a fib because basically I've always been a green person. I discovered nature when I was a little boy, and I, I've stayed with that connection. So right. it's very important to me. Well, and, you uh, some beautiful wild places too. Thank you. Yes, this is in Portugal. This is actually just some countryside alongside the road about five minutes from where I live like if I leave the house here and go around the corner and across the road I am where that photo was taken oh sorry yeah I was just going to say that if I walk to the shops here this is how I go I walk through this you know bit of countryside on my way to the shops and on my way back and it, it, it keeps me in touch with what's going on as well, you know, because through the seasons, it changes. So, of course, in the spring, there are lots of spring flowers. There's a lot of butterflies there in the spring, and there's a lot of birds about. And uh, in the summer, it gets very hot and dry here, so it's not so good then. It's, you know, pretty brown and dusty. Right. And now we're in autumn, or fall, as you call it, in America, and we're, we're starting to get some rain, and everything is starting to green up again. So I can see all this, if you like, almost on my doorstep by just going over and, you know, on my walk to the shops here. Right, right. Yes. If you're if you're just listening on Spotify, on Google Play, on Apple Podcasts or, you know, if you're just listening to the audio version, you're totally missing out. You got to go to the YouTube version and see this beautiful photo with I, I didn't even know, Steve, that there were. Uh, butterflies in Portugal. I thought that was a North American thing. Not so, huh? Uh, no, the, the, the monarch butterfly is in a lot of countries. Um, 
It's in, I mean, most people tend to think it's in America because there's the famous migration, and, and it is a, it's an incredible migration, all the way from Canada and the northern states all down to California and Mexico. But monarchs are, are also in other parts of the world. They're in Australia, they're in New Zealand, they're in the Canary Islands, they're in mainland Spain, they're in Portugal, they're in some of the Pacific Islands. So they're dotted around and about around the world. So uh, they kind of live up to the name of the wanderer because they wander. Yeah, you were before we started recording. You were telling an interesting story about how they wound up in the Canary Islands. Yeah, shall I carry on with that that story? Please, yes. I thought I found it to be interesting. Okay, yeah. Um, I used to live in the Canary Islands. I was in Tenerife for nine years, and that's where I first came across monarchs, you know, to actually see them in in real life. And I discovered uh, in my research about Tenerife and monarchs and and just, you know, where I was, that the monarchs were uh, estimated to have reached the Canary Islands in around 1875, somewhere around that kind of time. And what actually happened was there were no native milkweeds growing in the Canary Islands. But sailors used to bring plants back from their travels around the world. So they'd bring tropical and subtropical plants back to the Canary Islands and also to mainland Spain. And one of the plants they brought was a tropical milkweed. So they started growing it in gardens and parks in the Canary Islands Somehow, female monarchs, or a monarch or monarchs, we don't know how many, got to the Canary Islands, found the milkweed, were able to lay their eggs, and then that was the beginning of, you know, a new colony, a population of monarchs in a new, a new territory for them. Oh, that's amazing. And, uh, yes, and thank you. And also, something which is interesting about this is that a lot of people assume that, that all monarchs migrate and that this is, you know, a part of their life cycle. Right. And in, in America, they do, as I say, that they, they migrate all the way from Canada and the northern states all the way down to the south. But in the Canary Islands, because it stays warm enough all year round, they don't have to. So they're called like non-migratory monarchs. Oh, interesting. And it's the same here over in Portugal. That because it stays warm enough, certainly in the south, in the Algarve area, they don't need to migrate because they really they only migrate in America because it's so cold in the north that right. there's no food plants for the caterpillars. The milkweed all dies down, and th- there's nothing. So you know that they can't kind of continue their reproductive um, cycle. You know because the, the, the caterpillars can't feed. And it's even too cold for them to hibernate, so they clear off, they, they go down south. Right. And it's it's actually, I think this is amazing, because obviously this is a, um, an adaptation that they uh, th- that happened many, many, many years ago. We don't know how long ago. And it, it suits the monarchs there. But then whenever the monarchs got, as I say, 1870 or something, that they got to the Canary Islands, they found there they didn't need to migrate because it never got absolutely freezing everywhere and covered in snow. And so they had tropical milkweed growing even in the depths of winter. So they were able to to breed and and to carry on. So they gave up migrating. But, and this is important, um, 
it, it gives the, the actual lifespan of, of the butterflies a completely different lifespan. The migratory monarchs live a long time because they live all the time, all the way from the fall, uh, right through the winter into the following spring. Okay, right. so you know what's that? We'll say October, November, December, January, February, March. Maybe we'll call it six months. But the non-migratory monarchs don't don't live anywhere near that that length. They only live a couple of weeks. Oh, that's interesting. And which you know you could say was sad, or you know, yeah, but it just is as it is. Yeah, and the the non-migratory monarchs don't need to live a long time. Because all they live really for is to to find a mate, to you know, to mate, to to be able to reproduce for the females to find the milkweed plants to lay their eggs on, and and then that's it. So they only need a couple of weeks to do all this in. And the caterpillars, you know, maybe like in a week, ten days, a caterpillar can complete its life cycle. So it hatches from the egg in a couple of days. It eats in a ravenous way. It, you know, if you would talk about very hungry caterpillars, the monarch butterfly caterpillar is such a caterpillar. It then changes into the chrysalis, maybe another another ten days, and then it becomes the butterfly, and then then it all starts again. And so, in a place which is warm enough, where you have non-migratory monarchs, it just carries on all year round, and there's no need for them to. Um, to have a, a you know a period in which they go dormant, in which they hibernate, and there's there's no need for them to migrate. So it's a completely different system, and it's it's obviously came about that way because then we can even assume that the monarchs, the first ones that reached the Canary Islands, maybe they were migratory. You know, maybe they were American monarchs, and somehow they ended up across the ocean in the Canary Islands, and. Uh, it's just an incredible butterfly. The fact that it, it, it does adapt to its its uh, its situation like this, and I like to think that it's um, an illustration, if you like, of the Darwinian theory of evolution. Darwin talked about the adaptation that, that species, right. yeah, mm-hmm. and uh, it's this is like an example of it because you can see that the monarch adapts to where where it ends up. And, but it does depend, which is important, it does depend on, on milkweed. If there's no milkweed, it can't live there. And something I think is absolutely, almost miraculously wonderful is that in North America, you have all so many different types of milkweed. You have types which grow in the south, in, in the hot areas, and you have ones which grow up in the really cold parts and even into Canada. So... Uh, the milkweed plant, again, it's another example of, um, this is a, a plant species, Asclepius, in, in Latin is the scientific name for it. Mm-hmm. The Asclepius genus of plants has, has, has changed to, to live in, to grow rather, in all these different environments, different habitats and different temperatures. And so milkweeds grow right across America. So in nature, um, the, the, the monarch butterfly is able to live in any part of America. Right, right, right. I didn't, I, I didn't know there were so many different types of milkweeds and uh, even monarchs. That's fascinating. But your, your newest book, I do want to circle back to that. Your newest yes, book okay. is, I thought, your, <laughs> is part of your Earth Spirit series. So you're obviously 
into nature, into ecology, and into, uh, you know, saving the earth, your newest book is actually about oceans, which is foreign to the monarch. And whoops, we can't, there we go. Yeah, saving mother ocean. Yeah, yeah, saving mother ocean. So uh, tell us a bit about saving mother ocean and why you were, why you decided to write it. Why do you think it's important? Okay, well, uh, it started really for me with, I became very concerned about the plastic pollution, which, you know, I'm, I'm sure you were well aware. I mean, it, it's everywhere, yeah. Is a, isn't there a plastic island in the ocean, in the Atlantic? Uh, there are actually five of these. Uh, they're known as gyres. Um, the one you're probably thinking of is the Great Pacific Garbage Patch oh, Gyre. Estimated to be as big as Texas. Is oh. that the one you're thinking of? I think it is. That's starting okay, well, to be cleaned um, up a little bit. Yeah, uh, one thing I, I'd like to point out about these is that when people call them islands, mm -hmm. they are like size-wise maybe like an island, but, but they're not solid. So, you know, the, the plastic, the rubbish that's in them is all like maybe a lot of it is little bits and it's floating about. So you couldn't go to the Great Pacific Garbage Patch and get out of a boat and stand on it because you'd sink. Um, but there is just, you know, mile after mile after mile of rubbish floating about in the oceans, and most of it's plastic. And it's, it's interesting that we're actually talking about the Great Pacific Garbage Patch. It's because if you like my, my quest, my... Um, my, yeah, my, my quest to, to actually find out more about plastic pollution and do something started back in, was it 19, 1990, I think. Is that right? Uh, and anyway, it, it, was, it was a while ago. Uh, and uh, no, that's wrong, actually. It's not 1990. It's more like 2000 and, 2009 to 2010, 2010. Uh, I started following the work of David de Rothschild. Mm. And I don't know if you know, but David had a, a boat made of plastic called the Plastiki. And uh, the, the aim of this was to sail this across the sea to raise awareness of, of uh, plastic pollution and, and also to, um, to show that you can use, you can recycle plastic. So this is like, using plastic again, in this case, to make a boat. And it went from San Francisco all the way over to Sydney. And uh, it passed on the way, it passed the, the Great Pacific Garbage Patch, which we're talking about. So that's where I started. And I started to find out then that the plastic situation, which I thought, well, I already knew it was bad, is actually much worse than what I thought. So... Because I'm a writer, I'm a poet and a singer-songwriter, I wrote a poem about it, which I called Where Does All the Plastic Go? And then the years went by, and I thought, you know, maybe I should convert this into a song, which I did, so I added some chords and I made a song out of it. But I thought, you know, somebody famous will surely also be, you know, singing or recording and writing a song and and doing a song about plastic. And I'm a huge fan of Neil Young. I absolutely love Neil. I, I followed Neil, you know, for many years. And Neil is a protest singer as well as, you know, the rock star. And, uh, and, and 
Neil has kept up his protest um, songwriting. So I thought, you know, surely Neil Young will write a song about plastic pollution, but he didn't. I heard lots of, you know, famous pop stars and, and, and rock stars talking about plastic pollution. I heard Brian May, and Keris Matthews, and Chrissy Hind, and even Kanye West. Kanye West was on Twitter saying how terrible plastic pollution is. Mick Jagger of the Rolling Stones, Mick spoke out about plastic. So I thought, well, this is fantastic. There's all these really famous people talking about plastic, but still, none of them are actually singing about it. So I thought, okay, it's it's my cue to actually start, you know, um, performing my song and singing about it. So I recorded the song, and I that was how it started. And then for me, what happened then was I've got another book here. This is a book from Italy. I don't know if you can, there we are. There we go. Stop, Stop Plastica Amare by Filippo Solibello. Mm -hmm. And he is a famous radio host in Italy. So he contacted me back in, when was that? 2018, I think, or 2019. And he was talking to me like you're talking to me now. He was talking to me on Skype and he said, Steve, I'm writing a, a new book called Spam Stop Plastico Amare. And I'd like to give you some coverage in it. And, um, you know, I'll, I'll obviously be writing about your song. And I said, Filippo, I've got this other idea. I've got an idea for Ocean Aid, um, you know, like Live Aid, but in this, this case to have like Ocean Aid mm -hmm. to, to focus on, you know, raising awareness about the, the oceans and the threats to the oceans and to raise funds, you know, for charities that are working on, on, on saving the oceans. So he said, I thought this was a brilliant idea. And he said, Steve, do you mind if I, if I uh, tell people about your idea in Italy? I have like a lot of media contacts over there. And I said, no, no, Filippo, I, I don't mind, you know, ocean air, I just want to see it happening because I'm just concerned about the oceans. And I think, you know, we should do something about it. So uh, anyway, the, the time went by again, and his book came out, and he's given me a four-page chapter in there. And he's called the chapter, Where Does All the Plastic Go? In English. The rest of the book is in Italian. But that was like a, a starting point for my, uh, my, my quest and, and my, um, my, my project to, to try and do something about this. Uh, was was then in his book in Italy, okay? And then uh, this is a magazine from Wales. This is called... I try this yes. is a magazine from called Sund. Mm -hmm. Sund, Sand. And there's a, a page in it. Oh. Where we are, Ocean A. So I've got two pages in Sund from Wales talking about my ocean aid idea, my song, where does all the plastic go? And it's been just basically traveling the world. I was in, uh, I, I can't remember when this was, a few, several months ago, uh, the Ecologic Show, radio show from WBAIFM uh, from New York City. And I was on there as a guest and I was playing my song, where does all the plastic go? Talking about ocean aid again. So that's now America. So this is Italy, Wales, America. I was in the Portugal News, uh, a newspaper over here on the front page. 
Singing Against Pollution, it said in the caption. Mm-hmm. So that's Portugal as well. And and then this was this was fantastic. I was on the Instagram site, okay, mm-hmm. and uh, a Rotary Club, the Rotary Club of Wyndham Harbour discovered me, and they said they would like to do a feature on me in the Wave magazine. And what did I, how did I feel about that? And I said, yes, please, you know. So I, I was featured in the Wave magazine. Mm-hmm. And then I started attending Rotary meetings online in Australia. Um, and eventually I became a member of Rotary. And this is my welcome to Rotary. And so this is kind of interesting as well, because I'm a member of an Australian Rotary club, even though I'm living in Portugal. But it's how it came about. And I, and I, I say it's all fine because the, the whole... The project relates to the whole planet because the oceans, you know, we all share the oceans. The oceans yeah, doesn't belong to anybody. It's, you know. Right. And, mm-hmm. and it's also like why I call it like Mother Ocean. You know, people talk about Mother Earth and Mother Nature. And I think, well, really, it's Mother, Mother Ocean we need to be concerned about because, you know, science will tell us that, you know, all life originated in the oceans. You know, you had like in, in primeval times, in you know, prehistory, there were all these like small organisms that apparently started in, in the seas. And uh, I, I'm sure you've seen all this stuff about the, the evolution and, and then like some of the creatures started to go on the land and and, and how all that came about. But basically, we're, we're given the idea that that life started in the oceans. Mm-hmm. And today, we, we know this with science, that basically all life on this planet is dependent on a healthy ocean. For example, the carbon dioxide, which we're concerned about with the, the climate change and the climate crisis, the carbon dioxide levels in the atmosphere uh, are, are partially um, controlled by the oceans, because the oceans is what they call a carbon sink, And the the oceans absorb the carbon dioxide. But unfortunately for the oceans, this is also not so good now because uh, it means that the oceans are becoming acidic because the the carbon dioxide um, converts into carbonic acid in the the ocean water. This is bad for the shellfish. So all the shellfish and even like the hermit crabs, which, which actually take the shells of... Uh, you know, any shells they find, in some places, hermit crabs are unable to find shells. So there's all kinds, yeah, yeah, in fact, if you Google this, you'll find, this is kind of pretty weird, but um, hermit crabs are often taking plastic now, that they find plastic containers which are washed up on the beach or whatever. And so instead of a real shell, which they would normally live in, they're living in in a plastic container of, of some description. Right. Um, so there's all kinds of things which go wrong because because uh, the oceans are not supposed to be acidic. So that's just one of the one of the, the threats to the oceans. And I thought, well, okay, what and, and why I wanted it to be Ocean Aid is that we have like plastic pollution that just about everybody knows about now, but we also have acidification in Australia. This is causing coral bleaching. This is um, 
you know, Great because the water is becoming too acidic. Also, okay. it's becoming too warm due to the climate change. Yes. So then we have coral bleaching, which is killing the reefs. We have overfishing. This is going on worldwide. There's just too many fish being caught. Um, seabed mining, you know, we have like a, a lot of the mines on the land are causing a lot of problems, but they're doing mining in the sea. And again, it's causing problems. Gas and, and oil and, and, and other things are being mined from the sea. So we can see bad mining. And, you know, spills, these huge oil spills. Yes, oil spills, which are absolutely appalling, which just, you know, destroy so much marine life and, and wash up all over the shore. And, you know, it, it's awful. So we have like mining is another problem. We have nuclear, nuclear testing right. and nuclear, also nuclear dumping. And sonar and military testing, which doesn't do the, you know, the whales any good at all because they have they're subjected to this fantastic volume of sound in a place which should be quiet. So we have all these things, nuclear, as I say, nuclear dumping. In fact, I, I come originally from Wales, as I said, mm-hmm. and uh, in the um, near, near Cardiff City, yeah, which is um, the capital of Wales. Right. Nuclear mud is being dumped into uh, into the sea there. Nuclear mud. Nuclear mud. Yeah. So what has happened is that there's um, a power station, Hinkley, the Hinkley power station, on the other side of the Severn, the Severn estuary, Mm -hmm. and they've been uh, taking the mud from outside that power station with a dredger and then dumping it in the sea a mile from Cardiff. So there was like a tremendous amount of fuss about this, you know, a protest, protests about it. And uh, it's actually been stopped, I think, at the moment. But it hasn't got rid of the problem because they've taken, they're taking the mud and moving it further down and dumping it on the English side. So, you know, it shouldn't be dumped anywhere is what I'm yeah. saying. And um, two of the campaigners, one of them is... Uh, Neil McAvoy, who is a, a Welsh politician, and also Kian Kiaran. Uh, Kian is in the Super Furry Animals, a, a famous uh, rock band. And they they have both been, like, you know, really vocal, protesting about the nuclear mud. And they were calling, like, Cardiff, Cardiff Bay, Geiger Bay, you know, so the Geiger counter, mm-hmm. to to draw attention to this. So this is like, you know, an example of nuclear uh, dumping in an area that I even come from. So, so we have like new, that's that's another problem: the nuclear um, waste going into the sea, and we have all kinds of other pollution. And, and something that I say is really important is that so much of the stuff comes down the rivers, yeah. and for example, you know, most of the plastic comes down to the rivers, mm-hmm. and then in America you have like the dead zones. And again, you, you, you know about the dead zones, which are like thousands of thousands of square miles of, of sea, which are actually dead. That there's nothing in them. There's, there's no no sea life, no seaweed, no corals, no fish, nothing. Oh my! So they call them dead zones, and they usually start um, because there is too much uh, agricultural waste comes down the rivers. So, and, and there's like several types of fertilizers, artificial fertilizers, 
Mm -hmm. um, herbicides. From, from farms and, uh, and all of that comes down. Mm -hmm. Pesticides. All this stuff goes into the ocean and, and it causes a dead zone. So, again, it's coming down the rivers. So I've got a whole chapter in my book called Down the Rivers into the Sea. Mm -hmm. uh, so that's another problem. So there's so many different problems at the ocean. different issues. Now, let me ask you this. Um, this this um, idea for ocean aid is, yeah, ocean aid. Going yeah, to be, is this coming up? Well... Um, I, I had like a, I'm trying to get ocean aid concerts happening, and I'm putting this out there. So I've been putting this out there, you know, since I was first in in this book, you know. Uh, and what I want, ideally, is for a massive ocean aid concert to take place in a stadium somewhere, you know, like the Live Aid right. concert, which had you know major major stars performing in it. Um, I would like to see something like that happen. But, you know, I, I'm, I, I haven't got the kind of credibility to say, I want, you know, stadium-sized concerts, ocean aid. Um, let's call on some really famous people, including some of the people I mentioned, like Mick Jagger. Mick, you know, I can't really get on the phone now and say, Mick, I've got a fantastic idea. I know you support, you think the plastic pollution is bad. Well, how about we have an ocean aid concert? Now, you might think it's a great idea, but I can't get through to Mick Jagger, yeah? So it's difficult for me to get a concert of the size of Live Aid kind of happening. That's and, a major undertaking. Yes, yes, it's a massive undertaking. And so that's why, basically, I'm actually really happy to be talking to anybody that can help get this idea out there. So all these different, you know, publications, the Rotary Club from um, Wyndham Harbour in Australia, Filippo Solibello in, in, in India, um, you know, this magazine, Sun magazine from Wales, the Portugal News over here, it all helps because it's getting that message out. And uh, in, in, in the pandemic, which we're, we're all in, we're still in, uh, in the lockdowns, what was happening um, last year was like many musicians, I was thinking, well, we can't go out and do actual concerts anymore, but we can perform music online. Right. So I got, in, I got involved in uh, a show from New York again. I'm coming back to New York. There's a lady called Rue Starr. Rue is a singer-songwriter, actress, uh, musician, and uh, she's from New York. And she had a show called the, uh, the Ruin Who Show. Okay, so I went along to one of those online as a, you know, a singer-songwriter and performed some songs. And I got to meet, you know, all the other regulars on the show. And I became a regular myself. So every week I was one of the people on the Ruin Who Show. And I thought, well, because um, we haven't even got like an actual... Uh, Ocean Aid concert has really happened anywhere. Perhaps we can have one online. So, with the help of of the regulars from the Ruin Who show and James Lane, who was the the host and, and the techie guy for the Ruin Who show, we put together um, an Ocean Aid concert, which was back in February of this oh. year, mm -hmm. and uh, we did that and. And uh, and that that exists on on YouTube somewhere. You know, it's it's, it's online. Right. And um, 
That was a great idea to do that. Oh, thank you. Yeah, yeah. So, so you know, I, I was trying to say, you know, uh, it's all very well. I mean, I, I'm sure you've heard people saying we need action. You know, there's, there's too much talk. Yeah, cool. not, in fact, Greta Thunberg, you know, is kind of, you know, she's at the COP26 uh, summit going on now in Glasgow. But Greta has been saying for years... We need action. We don't need, you know, more talk. We don't need next week, next month, next year. We need some action now. And I agree with that. But I thought, I'm actually no better because I'm doing all this talk about Ocean Aid, but we haven't got any action. So this is why we ought to have an Ocean Aid concert. Maybe not a big one in a stadium with all these famous people, but we can still do one. So that's why, you know, we, we held that one. And ever since, I've just been telling people about it. And uh, and I thought um, it doesn't really matter where the Ocean Aid concerts take place. It doesn't really matter whether they're small. So if somebody, you know, if some musicians in, in a city somewhere want to hold like a small Ocean Aid concert there, great, go for it. If somebody, you know, somebody really famous, you know, big name uh, act hears about this and they think, okay, well, we can, we can, you know, I can tell people that I know in the business and we, fantastic. And it doesn't matter where it is because the whole, um, the matter of the oceans under threat from all these problems, which I've discussed earlier, is a worldwide problem. You know, we we all depend on the oceans. And and something I say... so I shouldn't say, um, you know, it, it, when I was younger, and, and indeed for most people, we, we like to think of the beach as somewhere to go. You know, a lovely, clean beach where you can go in bathing, paddling. You can, you know, stay in the sun on the beach, make sand, and all this. But we go to the beach now, and, and there's like pollution in the water, mm-hmm. sewage in the water, maybe, um, rubbish all over the beach, plastic. And so the whole, uh, the, the beauty of how the beach used to be is now being spoiled. Are you a healthcare professional looking to translate psychedelic research into practice? Then register for Psychedelic Harm Reduction and Integration, a professional training offered by psychologist Elizabeth Nielsen and Ingmar Gorman at the Omega Institute in Rhinebeck, New York, May 24th through 26th. Earn 12 continuing education credits as you discover how to better support clients who have an interest in psychedelics. Learn more at eomega.org slash thrive. And this is, this is worldwide, you know, and mm-hmm. it, it's, it, you know, for me, I think it's like, um, it's something that we should be concerned about worldwide. We absolutely um, should. So these these concerts, these um, this Ocean Aid, as you would you know like to have this idea go out there. Um, of course, raising money for saving the oceans. And what organizations do you see doing the most, or perhaps the the best job of directly cleaning up and saving the oceans? Well. Uh I'm going to say Sea Shepherd. I have decided Sea Shepherd. Mm-hmm. And I'm actually very proud and very honoured to say that Captain Paul Watson of Sea Shepherd has actually endorsed my book. Wonderful. And what does Sea Shepherd do? What are, how do they go about saying Shepherd, 
Sea Shepherd are doing all they can to stop the destruction of the oceans and protect the marine life in the oceans. Mm-hmm. And they are also doing all they can to stop crime in the oceans. So there's a lot of illegal stuff going on in the oceans. Right. And a lot of the, um, the overfishing, for example, you know, maybe that, that, that's, you know, people have quotas, but quotas are being broken all the time. Mm-hmm. And the people that pilot, uh, the, the pilot those ships don't really care about laws. They care about getting in a lot of fish because they can sell it. And that, that, that's it. And the captains of these ships don't really care about their crew. In fact, in fact, a lot of the, the men that work on these sh- ships are actually subjected to appalling abuse, and and it's terrible. I, I actually, I've got another book here by Ian Urbina. Maybe you've heard of it, um, The Outlaw Ocean. It's a bestseller, and I, I read I read Ian's book, and I thought, good heavens! I mean, this is just terrible. So it's not just like an environmental problem; it's a social problem. Absolutely. Uh, you know, there are men coming from really poor, terrible backgrounds, mainly in Asia, who end up on these uh, these these trawlers, these fishing uh, fishing boats, and uh, and they are treated really badly, and they're not paid, and they're they're basically like slaves, you know, um, held on these ships. Right. And and this is so. This is crime on the sea. Yeah. This is like you know piracy, modern day piracy on the seas by you know which is going on. Mm-hmm. Um, sea Shepherd will will try to in, interfere in, in 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 stuff like that. Sea Shepherd will try to save whales. Sea Shepherd will also clean up plastic. Sea Shepherd does whatever they can to stop the problems in the oceans. Wonderful. And. Uh, I was going to say as well, like Sea Shepherd actually do have a lot of support from many famous people. Uh, I mentioned Mick Jagger is one. Mick Jagger supports Sea Shepherd. Also the band Coldplay. Coldplay support Sea Shepherd. Um, The actress Daryl Hannah. So you know Daryl, she supports Sea Shepherd. So... Uh, I, I was I was thinking about this. I was thinking, okay, well, which of, of all these you know charitable organisations that are helping the oceans shall I support? And I thought, yes, Sea Shepherd's the one. Well, the, sounds like they're doing wonderful things and have tremendous support. What can we do as individuals to help the oceans? Here I am, landlocked in Kansas City, Missouri, right in the middle of the United States, but. What can I do to help? Okay. Um, you just made me think there immediately of that, as I was saying, like all the rubbish comes down the rivers. Yeah. yeah. So it doesn't matter how inland you are, if there is a river anywhere near where you live, that river carries pollution, plastic, all kinds of rubbish down it, and it will end up eventually in the sea. Right, all waterways are connected. Yes, that's right, yes. And it all goes to the sea, which is actually in my song. In my song, I sing, where does all the plastic go? Into the sea, into the sea. How did it get there? Who threw it away? Was it you or was it me? And and it's basically saying that all this rubbish, you know, we're all kind of responsible for it somewhere. If I throw something away and it ends up in a river or a stream or even in a drain, 
it's got a good chance of ending up in the sea. And so in, a lo in our, our local areas, wherever we are, if we can encourage others, you know, not to be throwing rubbish in the street or where if we can pick up rubbish up and put it in a bin, anything we can do to, to help stop the rubbish is worth doing. Um, we can all also help stop the, the plastic escalating, yeah? Um, we can reduce the amounts of plastic. I mean, I, I, I know this is really hard to do because plastic is everywhere. Did you know that Radiate Wellness is more than just a podcast? That's right. We're also a comprehensive holistic wellness practice. Find out about our services, practitioners, and upcoming events at radiatewellnesscommunity.com. While you're there, visit our podcast page to read more about our great guests and even donate to the podcast. If you like our podcast, you can help in other ways as well, like subscribe or follow us wherever you're listening right now. Tell a friend, a family member, or a co-worker about the great content you find here. And if you wouldn't mind, please give us a thumbs up, a five-star rating, or a positive review. Sounds like a small thing, but it really helps. You might like to know about our Facebook communities while we're at it. We have a free community, the Radiate Wellness Community, on Facebook for news and great free content. Our subscribers group is Radiate U, as in the letter U, but also, well, you. There you'll find curated replays of past classes, guest interviews, and more. And now, back to our podcast and back to our guest. I mean, I've got like, I'm, I've got a, a plastic, you know, um, keyboard here for this computer. I've got plastic, uh, you know, frames for my glasses. Plastic is all around us, yeah? It is. So uh, I think, you know, some people talk about banning plastic, stopping plastic. I think that's impossible. But what I think we can all do is I think we can all reduce plastic. We can all, you know, cut down on the amount of plastic stuff that we're using and buying. Especially and, plastic uh, bags, the shopping bags. I don't know what yes, they do. Yes, exactly. Yeah. Right. So if we go to if we go to a store, yeah, if we go to a store. If we take a cloth bag there, that's a reusable bag, then we can put all of our shopping in that bag. We don't need to to, to take or buy a plastic bag from the store. Right. And that's one thing. Um, and same thing I think with it's restaurants. Like, yeah, restaurants uh, to go containers. That's right. Yeah, yeah. Um, if we if we go to a restaurant, if we take our own container to put any like you know food that we don't manage to eat in, instead of getting from them another a plastic container, lots of restaurants do like takeouts and they put it in a plastic container. Or styrofoam, which is also terrible. Styrofoam, which is awful. Yeah, that, that, styrofoam is one of the worst because it, it just breaks up into little bits of of white styrofoam. And mm -hmm. Yeah, if they can use paper or foil containers, that would be much better. Foil container is better. Anything, just about anything is better than plastic. Plastic is, and the main problem with plastic is it doesn't break down. This is, That's you know, the problem. But when, yeah, when plastic was invented, it was, it was heralded as a, a wonderful new 
new invention. She and because it, mm-hmm. that's right, because it doesn't, it doesn't, um, you know, it, it's it, it stays. It's not going to, you know, break. It's not going to um, decompose. It's something that, that's really strong. It is strong. It's so strong. It's going to be here for hundreds of years. You know, that's the problem. Right. Um, and Mother Nature does not have a way of dealing with plastic. Like everything else, wood, paper, metal even, you know, all these things break down after a while. Mm -hmm. For example, like um, iron, it rusts. And and, and even glass, you know, glass breaks up and it it becomes sand and and, Mm -hmm. and paper, it rots, and wood rots, and all these other natural substances, they all break down. Plastic doesn't. Plastic stays. What plastic does is it, is it breaks into tinier and tinier and tinier pieces, but they're still plastic. So we have micro ingested by sea life, by turtles, fish, whales. That's uh, right. Birds ingested. That's right. That's right. In fact, most seabirds have got plastic in them. Most whales have got plastic in them. Most turtles have got plastic in them. Mm-hmm. And there's nothing else that they can do. But, I mean, for example, even if they, even if they suck some water, if you're a whale and you've got like a big mouth and you suck in some water, maybe to swallow some fish, which you should be eating, or then you or some plankton, which you should be eating, because there's some whales also feed on plankton, you suck in the water, you're also sucking in the little bits of plastic. So you're swallowing plastic. And uh, a turtle, for example, the turtles, some turtles eat jellyfish, yeah? And if they, like a jellyfish and a plastic bag floating looks very similar to a turtle. So it sees what it thinks is a jellyfish and it goes, you know, to, 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 to eat that. And it's not eating a jellyfish, it's eating plastic. So... That's not good. You know, it, it, it's, it's so... All of these animals, right, are are dying from ingesting things that they should. Yes, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I think one of the saddest things of all is the the seabirds that are feeding plastic to their babies, to their chicks. For example, like the albatrosses. The albatrosses, what a wonderful bird. You know, albatross couples, you know, they kind of mate for life and... And, and, and they find each other, like, even if, if they separate and they go, you know, flying about all over the oceans, they come back together, you know, for the breeding season. Mm-hmm. And then and, and the female, she lays her eggs, then the eggs hatch, and then they have their chick, their baby. And, of course, they want to look after their baby. They go out, they, they try to collect fish to feed the baby. They can't find fish in some cases because of the overfishing, because there's not there isn't even any fish there. But they see other stuff floating about, and uh, it's plastic. And they collect the plastic, they take it back, they feed it to the baby. The baby cannot digest it. It builds up in the baby's stomach, and eventually the baby dies. And so we have all these, I'm sure you've seen them, horrible photos of like, yeah. Oh, it's terrible. so this problem has been going on for some time, and it is of epic proportions. I think we can all agree on that. Um, I'd like to circle back, though, Steve, and find out how you got into all of this. How did you become such a staunch environmentalist? 
I, I got into all of this when I was a little boy. I, I mean, really, that like four, maybe four or five. That's yeah. little, yes. And and like uh, I go out in the garden, you know, where in the, the house I lived with my parents, and and for me, like there were things there. There were insects. For example, I might find like a beetle, or a pill bug, or a centipede, or a spider or a caterpillar, or any of these, these insects and little crustaceans and arachnids. I thought, well, that's fantastic. And so I'd ask my mum and dad, say, what's this? And then they'd tell me. And then we had a tortoise, a pet tortoise, and that for me was fantastic. And I started to get interested in flowers. And so my dad used to take us out in the car, you know, to trips in the countryside, and we'd find wild flowers. And so I started to you know, to, to, to find out about them. And I'd ask my mum and dad for, for books. They used to buy me books on wildflowers and insects and wild wildlife and all these things. And, and they became, like, for me, absolutely wonderful. They, they were, if you like, my focus in life. And uh, they were such a big part of my life. And, and I started to do things, for example, like I mentioned caterpillars. And, and we've talked about butterfly. I'd find a caterpillar... And then I put it maybe like in a, in a pot, and I and I put the leaves that the caterpillar was was eating in the pot, and then the caterpillar it would change into a cocoon or a chrysalis, and it would change into a moth or a butterfly, and I'd see this, and to me it was magical. It was like, wow, look at this, amazing. So, and again, I'd, I'd get books on this, books on moths and butterflies. And so I'd learn about all the different species and I'd learn as a boy, like a little boy, that they needed different plants. So, you know, I mean, a lot of people, I, I say this, like, like a lot of people think, oh, caterpillars, they eat leaves. And that's true. But, but the problem is, is that one type of caterpillar can only eat one type of, of, of leaf. You know, they can't eat anything. So all, all the butterflies and all the moths need a supply of the plants that their caterpillars eat. And uh, I, I learned about all this when I was little. I, I say, I've just written another book, which will be published next year. This book's called The Magic of, of Butterflies and Moths. And in there, I talk about the, the fact, like, when I was a little boy, my, my grandfather and my, my, my grandma, they used to live up the road from where I lived with my parents. So I used to visit them a lot. They had in their garden uh, a bush called the flowering currant bush, and there were caterpillars on there. And there were like two types of caterpillars, and the one was something in America you called it the rusty tussock moth. Hmm. In Britain we call it the vapor moth. And it's caterpillar. It's fantastic. It's caterpillar that's got coloured tufts of coloured fur all over it, and and it looks amazing. And, but it's such a strange moth because the, the female moth, she cannot fly, she cannot eat, and, and she's just like a grub and she hatches out and she waits for a male rusty tussock moth to find her, they mate, and then she lays her eggs on her cocoon and then she dies. The male rusty tussock moth, he's got wings, he can fly about, but he can't eat either. So... These are like strange things about this moth. Oh, but I discovered all this when I'm a little boy. So when, when my, my vapor moth or rusty tussock moth uh, chrysalis in its cocoon hatched out, if it was a female, it wasn't a flying 
moth. It was a, a strange grayish, brownish, grub-like thing that couldn't fly. And, and then I said, gosh, look at that. And so I, I would learn as I'm a little boy that nature came in, in so many different ways. And even if we as, as humans think something isn't very nice, in nature, it, it is as it is. And I, I have a story that I, I, I tell that um, I had a, 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 a dragonfly nymph, when, well, again, when I was a little boy, and I looked after this dragonfly nymph, and again, people see the dragonfly, they think, oh, that's ugly, oh, it's all brown and, and crawly, and it lives in mud, and so people don't think it looks very nice, but they think the dragon, oh, it's beautiful. Anyway, I looked after the, the ugly duckling stage, you know, the, the dragonfly nymph, and one day it came that the dragonfly, it emerged from, you know, from, from its nymph stage, and it was what we call a golden ringed dragonfly. And it's amazing. It's got like a long black body with golden yellow rings all around it. And it dried its wings out and they were like translucent and iridescent and they were sparkling with, with an amazing body. And I'm looking and I think, oh, that is so fantastic. Oh, I'm going to go and tell my mum and dad to come and see it. So I went in the house. I've been about seven or eight or something. I said, Mum, Dad, you've got to come and see my dragonfly. It's so absolutely fantastic. Come and see it. And they came out in the garden and it was in the sun and the dragonfly was there and we're looking at it. And then the dragonfly started going, was vibrating its wings. And I thought, oh, it's going to fly. It's going to fly. It was really exciting. And then the dragonfly took its first flight and it flew across the, the lawn. And we're all, oh, look at the, and then a little bird, a little brown bird, it swooped down and it grabbed the dragonfly and that was the end of the dragonfly. And so I'm in tears. And my mum and dad's, oh, Steve, and I'm so, and I thought, oh, gosh, but my dragonfly, after all that care and after all that, and it was so beautiful and the little bird didn't care less, the little bird's eaten it. But, but it, it taught me a lesson. It taught me that, you know, that the other animals, they don't see how, how we see. And if, if you're a bird and you see a dragonfly or a butterfly or a caterpillar or whatever it is, that's something to eat. So uh, I, I had like a, a lot of learning experiences as a child. Right. But the one it thing. just so much. Yeah, yeah yes, it, it is so much. And it, but it's also all these um, experiences I've had have shown me how important nature is. Or, and, and, and for me, it's all nature. And this is why I said like Mother Ocean, Mother Earth, Mother Nature, it, it's all to do, like if we, if we think of um, the world as, as Mother Earth, yeah, mm -hmm. um, everything that lives on, on this planet is Mother Earth's children. Yeah, and so we're Mother Earth's children, and the birds are Mother Earth's children, and the, the insects are Mother Earth's children, and the reptiles and the amphibians and the fish and the, the spiders and the worms and the slugs and the snails and all the creatures that live on the planet are Mother Earth's children. And that's how I see it. So for me, you know, you can't say this one is better than that one or this one is more important than that one or anything. They're all important. Absolutely. And that, that for me is really important. And that's, again, something I learned as a little boy, you know. So you've also, okay, so 
you've written this book, Herbs of the Sun, Moon, and Planets. I can't imagine that there would be herbs. I, I, I know herbs on the Earth, but how can there be herbs on the moon and the sun and the planet, other planets? Christy, that's fantastic that you just asked me that because I often, you know, try. If, I, if I'm, you know, giving a talk somewhere, I explain this. And I explain it actually in, in the introduction, you know, in this book. But, you know, there aren't herbs growing on the sun or on the moon. Okay, that, okay, that makes more sense to me. Yes, but, what is this book about? But, but what, what actually has happened was that um, in ancient times, the, there were uh, herbalists. And uh, the herbalists, uh, of, of whom the most famous was a guy called Nicholas Culpepper. I've heard of him. Uh, you've heard of N Nicholas Culpepper, yeah? Culpepper. Yes. And 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 these these people uh, sort of married um, astrology with herbalism. So they had the idea that. Um, you have like planetary rulers. You had like, for example, I talk about the god Mars, who was the god of war. Mm -hmm. And the god of war uh, would, would rule some, some of the herbs. The, the, goddess, the goddess Venus, yeah, uh, she was the goddess of love and of sensuality. And so, you know, she would rule various herbs. Mercury, Mercury was the messenger of the gods. Right. Okay, so um, and I, I got to be thinking about all this stuff when I was putting this book together. Mercury, as a messenger of the gods, yeah, was dealing in communication. So the plants which are under Mercury in some way really communicate to us. Oh, my Jupiter. God. Jupiter. Jupiter is known as, it's a gas giant. It's one of the, the biggest planets in our solar system. It's made of gas, scientists tell us. Okay. One of the characteristics of Jupiter is expansion, moving outward. And a lot of the herbs that are ruled by Jupiter are trees. And I, so I, I thought, well, why is this? Why, why the pine tree, the, the, the lime tree? The, well, why are these trees ruled by Jupiter? And I, then I got it. I thought, because the trunk goes up, then you have the crown of the tree. And what does it do? It expands out. Expansion and Saturn. Saturn is the the ring planet, and Saturn is another gas giant. But it, it, its characteristics is it, it's thought of as like the Grim Reaper. It's it's associated with old age and and with death and and time. And a lot of the plants ruled by Saturn are poisonous plants. So you have all these different, and I, I, and I didn't get, I'll just go back to rather, like I started with Mars. Some of the plants that are ruled by Mars, uh, you know, they have something aggressive about them. So maybe they have like really spiky leaves, or maybe they have like something red, like red berries or red sap, like, because red is like blood, it's violence in war. And so um, the, this plant that's actually on the cover here, that one there, that is a dragon tree, okay? Okay. And, and in my life, in my experience, I was saying I, I, I lived in Tenerife and I encountered my first dragon trees in, in Tenerife. Right. Now, the dragon tree 
uh, was an ideal candidate for being ruled by Mars because the dragon tree, it has really spiky leaves and call it lance-shaped or sword-shaped leaves. It has, if you cut it, and this is really weird, if you cut the dragon tree's trunk, a sap comes out, a resin, and as it dries, it goes dark red. They call that dragon's blood. Okay. Oh, yes. You heard of that? Yeah, dragon's yes. blood. They make, uh, I believe, uh, incense of it. That's right. There's a dragon's blood incense, and they used to use dragon's blood in making like varnishes and uh, yes, um, paints and colors. Colors, yeah, yeah, and, and the dragons and and the dragon's tree. The dragon's tree also has like a red berry. So again, it's something red. So it has red. It has spikiness. So. Uh, one of the ancient herbalists, maybe Nicholas Culpepper, said, okay, what can we put the dragon tree under? We'll put it under Mars. And then uh, we go to the goddess Venus. Now, everybody thinks of the rose, the red rose as a symbol of love. You know, you, you see it in the love stories, in the films, in the books. You know, the guy presents, you know, the lady he loves with the red rose, the rose. And so the rose went under Venus. Mm-hmm. We go to the moon. Now, you may think, well, this is a strange one. And there are, as I said, there were no herbs on the moon. But what are the characteristics of the moon? The moon is round. You have, like, the full moon. And the moon is associated with water, okay, because the moon rules the tides. So um, an example of a, a herb ruled by the moon is the water lily. And why? Because the water lily's leaf is round like a full moon and the water lily grows on water. Yeah, And water is associated with the moon because the moon rules the tides and, and, and it's linked with water. The willow tree, again, is another one ruled by the moon. Why? Because the, the willow tree likes to grow by water. So uh, in each case, there was something which was a characteristic which the herbalist could have could have thought about and thought, okay, that characteristic is like the, the deity that I'm thinking of, you know, the, the god or goddess, the planet the planetary ruler. And, and and the herb has that as well. So I put that herb under that particular uh, that, that particular god, that particular astrological ruler. So that's how, how it all came about. And uh, it gave me a lot to think about. And some of it, as, you could, as, as, as you've just heard, is actually easy. Like, you know, where, where do we put the rose? Oh, put it under Venus. Um, the sunflower is another one that's really easy. Absolutely. The sunflower, okay. The sunflower looks like a mini sun. You know, it's got the yellow petals radiating out. Solar disk in the middle. It grows up. Where does it like to grow? It likes to grow up straight up in a nice sunny location with its sunny face kind of beaming out, um, radi- radiating, radiating. Mm-hmm. And so the sunflower was ideal to go under the herbs of the sun. And then under the herbs of the sun, another one, you know, with those characteristics, but much smaller, the chamomile. You look at the chamomile flower, and again, it's got petals which radiate out and a yellow middle like a sun. So... 
this is how how they you know they decided which herbs went under which of the the different rulers so that's what that book's about basically Oh, that is so amazing. So, yeah, is, just looking at your bio, you're very prolific. You write articles. You've been a host on the BBC as well, um, BBC shows. And I would be remiss if I did not mention that you were also on Britain's Got Talent. Yes, that, that's true. I, I was on Britain's Got Talent. And <laughs> this week, I'm sure, went down very well for it. Um, I'm sure. What was that experience like? Uh, that experience, it was, well, uh, there were several experiences because I, I had to go through two uh, auditions before the, the TV audition. Right. But, um, so I know what it, what it takes now. I know, like, if you, if you submit yourself to audition for a reality show, you may have to go through all these. Um, the first audition was in uh, a Welsh uh, a Welsh Valley's town, a place called Merthyr Tydfil. Mm-hmm. And I'd seen all the publicity and I thought, oh, there's going to be like large queues of people there. And there weren't. It was in an empty shop in, in Merthyr Town Centre. There were two people ahead of me and a guy on the door. And you, you, you waited your turn and then he took you through. Then there were two people in, in, in the empty shop and you performed your act in front of them. And I did that, and I uh, I actually did. Well, I'll tell you what I did. Well, what I when I went in, the girl of the auditioning team, she said she liked my beard. So I said, "Oh, thank you, thank you very much." So I know the beard played a hand in this. And anyway, I said to them, I said, "I've been asking my my friends and fans on Facebook." Do you think I should do original material, a song of my own, or should I do a cover song? And it was 50-50. Half the people said, you must do your own stuff, Steve. Other people said, no, no, you must do a cover, because that's what they'll be looking for. So I said, look, now I'm here in front of you. You know, what do you want me to do? They said, why don't you do one of each? So I said, oh, thank you very much. So I did Let's Twist Again, you know, that song, Chubby oh, Chacket. So I did that, and they liked that. And then I said, okay, so um, that's my cover song. And then I did another song of mine called Kingfisher, mm. and, and which has actually got the line, Kingfisher's green, Kingfisher's blue. He's so lovely, but I love you, I'll be your Kingfisher. And, and sometimes I talk about my beard, it's kind of Kingfisher colour. Anyway, I did that song, they liked that, and they really liked it, so they were applauding. So I said, look... I can see you like both songs I did. Is there any chance I could do one more? They said, oh, yes, yes, go for it. So I did Stand By Me. Oh, and I said, like, when I do Stand By Me, I, I ask people to come and do so, yeah? So if you would like to come and join me, we, we do Stand By Me together. So they left the camera rolling, and we did Stand By Me together, and they loved it. And the, the guy, this side, he was like jigging about to it. And the girl, this side, she was dancing to it. And they're both clapping and they're singing along. And I thought, and so they loved that. So I thought, okay, I've got a very good chance with, with, with uh, this auditioning team. And then I got through. So in a couple of weeks, you know, I got a call to say I'm through to the next part. The next part 
was more like what I expected. This was in Birmingham. It was in a huge venue, okay, the Birmingham Hippodrome. It had, like, big queues of people. It had big billboard signs saying Britain's Got Talent and Union Jack flags on it and all this stuff. And uh, But I had an appointment, so I didn't have to, you know, go, join a queue or anything. I could just go through. I had, you know, the, the time for, for me to be seen. But otherwise, it was much the same. There were two people there. You had to, you know, talk to them, play a song. I did two songs again. I did Stand By Me again. They'd already seen Stand By Me. They had footage from the other audition. And um, they, they, they liked, they liked, you know, what I did. They said if I, if I wanted to hang about outside, uh, some, some more people from their team might want to take photos or maybe some more filming of me. Uh, so I said, thank you very much. So I did, and they did. They, they took a lot of photos of me and some video footage of me. And and uh, some of that actually ended up, you know, in uh, trailers for the show. Mm-hmm. But th- then I got to go. Then again, I waited. And after a few weeks, I got an- another call to say, Steve, you were so lucky. I'd like to congratulate you. Hardly anybody gets this far. But you were now through to going before the judges for the televised version of Britain's Got Talent. Oh. And so thank you very much. Then I had to wait to be told when, where, and whatever. But I was told in an email they wanted me to do Stand By Me. Okay? So I thought, okay, so Britain's Got Talent is actually on my side. They want me to do Stand By Me. The girl that was in charge of my case, she said, the audience are being briefed, Steve, that they can join you when you do Stand By Me. And I thought, this is amazing. They're, they're, they're laying it all on for me. They're basically even getting the audience to sort of join in. So this is great. I'm going to win this. So I'm really optimistic. What happened on the actual day was it was a different case, right? Now, the, the, the backstage crew, they knew what I was going to do. They knew that I encouraged the audience. In fact, I was told, I was told, when you, when you go on stage, Steve, Tell the audience that they must come up row by row, which I did do. Okay, and this is all on. There's, there's a video on on YouTube. You can see that. So I said, I said to the audience, "Oh, you can come up row by row." Simon Cowell's looking absolutely horrified. Simon is, what? It's, it's like, can we just get on with it? And he's like, can we just get on with a show? Can we just sing the song? And, and he's like, he's really annoyed. So I, okay, so I better sing the song. So I start singing the song, but then the the, the first front rows of, of the audience have just heard me inviting them up, and, and they've presumably been briefed they can do this. So they're all coming up on the stage. And Simon is like, what? And he, and he hits his buzzer, and he said, you can all go back to your seats now. And then, no. and then David, David Walliams hit his buzzer, and, but meanwhile, Amanda Holden was enjoying what I'm doing, right? Because I had all these, these women up on the stage, you know, behind me, with Stand By Me, and they're all dancing about, right? Yeah. And Simon said, so you can all go back to your seats now, so they all have to... Amanda was going like this, you know, and she said, oh, stand by... And, and Alicia reached over and hit Amanda's buzzer as well, Okay. So, you know, people saw this and said, well, that wasn't even fair. Alicia shouldn't have done that. But basically, we had, like, all the buzzers have been hit, but that's it. 
So, so that that was it. So I I didn't get any further. You but, um, rebel. <laughs> Such a rebel. I, yeah, but it, it was like you know, it was an amazing experience, and I did get a tremendous amount of publicity. Um, oh my goodness! Well, hey, all publicity is good publicity, right? That's right. Yes. Yes. And so uh, speaking of publicity and getting in touch with you, how would we find out about your work? Do you have a website that you'd like to promote? Uh, yes, I, I, well, I have lots of websites, but I think maybe, maybe if, you, if you go to, this is the easy one to remember as well, steveandrews.info. Perfect. Yeah, steveandrews, Steve Andrews, one word. Stephen with a V, S-T-V-E-A-N-D-R-E-W-S, Steve Andrews, dot info. And that's where they can, where people can find out more about your environmentalist work and support your they mission? Can, they can find out more. They can also find, that, that, I call that my landing page because that one will also take you to the, oh, this is something else. Look, it's all too much, but I, I'm also known as the Bard of Ely. Now, oh, yes. in America, it tend to say Eli, and I had to say, no, it's not Eli, it's E. Lee. And then even this is confusing because in the UK, there's a, a city called Ely, and it's not that Ely, it's actually an estate in, in Cardiff, which is also Ely. And the only famous thing about this Ely in Cardiff is that Shaking Stevens came from there. Have you heard of him, Shake? No. Uh, okay, well, he, he had um, a string of hits way back, maybe the, the, the 70s, I think. But uh, one of them was Behind the Green Door. Uh, you know that song? Oh, no? oh maybe. Okay. Anyway, he was basically like an Elvis Presley kind of copy. Um, right. Rock rock singer, pop singer, and he had like a... Uh, anyway, he came from Ely. Uh, I, I I lived in Ely for 24 years, and while I lived in Ely, I used to write for a magazine called The Big Issue, which you may have heard of. It's a magazine for the homeless people, it raises money oh, for... Oh, wonderful. And uh, they called me the Bard of Ely, because they knew I was a singer-songwriter, a poet, a performer, mm-hmm. and, and they knew I lived in Ely, so they called me the Bard of Ely. Now, some people say, what is a bard? And so I say, well, a bard is a, a performer, a minstrel, uh, a poet, um, a storyteller. Yeah, bard um, traditionally told stories through song. That's right. Yes, yes. In, in medieval times, you had like mm-hmm. bards, and 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 um, anyway, uh, the the landing page for stevenandrews.info takes you to the Bard of Ely page. Yes. And on the Bard of Ely page, you can find all my music is on there. And you can find out a lot more about me. But there is so much to find out about me. That, I mean, it's, it's, it's too you much. Two pages. You have to have two pages, Steve, to say everything. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. The, your book, uh, Saving Mother Ocean, is actually out at the end of November. We're recording this November 2nd, so early in the month. And your book comes out through uh, Moon Books. Moon Books, that's right. Yeah. Subsidiary of John Hunt Publishing in Britain. And uh, you can find that on the John Hunt Publishing website. And also in America, I believe. I think there's a John Hunt 
publishing. Oh, wonderful, wonderful, as well as, you know, wherever we find books. In fact, yes, it, it is, because um, I know that, like, my books are available in America and in, in the UK uh, from, for example, from Amazon. Like, if you go to Amazon, you, you should find... If I may put out a plug for independent booksellers, if you have an independent bookseller in your town, please support it. It may take a little bit longer to get the books in, but it's so worth it. So we can find our, your book there as well. So thank you so much, Steve, for joining me today. Is that it? Is it all over? <laughs> <laughs> where was, where been, is the time gone? Where is the time it's gone? It's been fun. It's been almost uh, an hour and a half, but it's so much fun to have you and your beautiful green beard on the podcast, Steve. Thank you. Well, thank you so much, Christy. It's been a, a pure joy being here. And I have so much to tell tell you and share. And uh, I, I, I'm really glad that you've given me a chance to share some of my life and, and, and my world. Thank you. Radiate Wellness is an international community of holistic and alternative healers dedicated to helping you create spiritual, energetic, and physical well-being. To learn more about our practitioners, services, classes, and events, or to schedule an appointment, visit us at radiatewellnesscommunity.com. Intuition is our spiritual GPS and the single best tool that we have for navigating our lives. I'm Victoria Shaw, and on my Intuitive Connection podcast, I will share with you the ways to connect with your intuition and awaken the gifts of your soul. In each episode, I'll draw on my own intuitive gifts and my training as an Ivy League trained counselor and psychologist to help support you in reaching your highest potential. Start listening now on Mind Body Spirit FM Podcast Network or wherever you find your podcasts.